We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And many more and many more. And so as is the case every single week, it is a simple reminder for each and every one of us to look at ourselves and ask ourselves what is changing. But since it's such a small group, we don't need to go through that whole cycle over and over again. And because this is technically just a bayan as opposed to a full khutbah, is there anything you want to talk about? This can actually be interactive because there's no Islamic value to this. Is there any value in it all? You can go. Okay, in any case, so having said that, there is an issue that is uh, relative or uh, relevant in terms of repeating every period, every, every once in a while. And now that we're halfway into the semester, one of the issues that comes up through the course of the year, and it starts right about this time of the year, is the issue of relationships. By relationships, I don't mean friendships. I'm talking about relationships that move beyond the level of friendship. And so the first point to think about with everyone is that if you spend time with a person, if you spend enough time with a person, you are going to develop feelings for them. The feelings might be romantic feelings of attraction. They might be repulsion, but you will develop feelings. And if the feelings become more in the romantic side of things, the next concern is that your biology, and many of you have already heard this from me, your biology is stronger than your rationality. And so what do I mean by this? Is that as these sentiments, whether we want to call it infatuation or a crush or something else, but in the whole universe of romantic feelings, your brain starts to shut off. Your rationality, your reason starts to shut off. And the object of your affection, that person becomes more and more in your eyes beautiful, more and more in your eyes charismatic, uh, and wondrous in all kinds of different ways. And what else starts happening, you start developing joy in thinking about the person. And as the crush gets stronger and stronger, then you are beginning to hope that that person will reciprocate. And so then you face the dilemma, do I share or do I not share? Do I share and become vulnerable in a moment? Or do I keep this to myself? If I keep this to myself, this continues to grow. If I share, then the risk is uh, that they completely get repulsed and turn me down. Or they turn me down not by getting repulsed. Or the hope is that they reciprocate. But what is the overall point? The point that I'm making is for each and every one of us to consider that when you spend time with a person, you will develop feelings for them. This is just part of human nature. And, and so when we speak of gender interaction, here I've watched MSA over the 15, or not 15, the 11, 12 years I've been here, I've watched MSA literally try everything. So back in the day when I started here, everything was about gender segregation. And so the Musalla, like our Musalla, had a wall, but that was also where they did Juma, and they would do Juma with the wall up. 
and the events would also have a wall. Uh, it might be a physical wall in the sense of something hard, or it might be a sheet that is being kept. And the repeated point over and over again was that men and women have to be separate. Now what's also interesting is that occasionally an LGBT student would enter and then would have an even more visceral different experience. But this is all related to the same point, that there was this hard, hard effort of keeping gender segregated. When you make things too strict, then the inevitable result is going to be blowback. And so we would see bizarro behaviors and bizarro language among the men and the women on matters of gender, to the point that men would often share with each other that to, to, to help deal with this, think of the women on campus as animals. And so when you're getting too strict, I'm using gender interaction as an example, but this applies to everything, you have this bizarro blowback, this bizarro behavior that, that gets created to reinforce the strictures. Now, what is the risk of getting too loose? The risk of getting too loose or removing all the strictures is that you water everything down. You lose everything, you lose the essence of everything. And so the challenge is to figure out what the happy medium is. And I'm starting in the context of gender interaction, but now let's shift from gender interaction to anything else. That we have an ongoing belief in our community when it comes to Dean, when it comes to religious practice, that if something is more strict, it is more Islamic. And that is wrong for the exact reasons that I gave, that if you're too strict, you're gonna cause one type of repulsion. If you're too loose, you're gonna water everything down. And so when we speak of our way as the middle community, we're saying the challenge of every generation in trying to figure out how to articulate Islam, part of the challenge is to figure out what is this middle way. I don't like using the word moderate because it's so political, but that is what we're actually saying. That one extreme is too strict, the other extreme is too loose. And so think about this, again, starting in the context of gender interaction, but apply it to everything else. Uh, when students come to me and ask me what is appropriate, I'll tell them, if you can honestly say that your parents are fine with what you're doing or planning to do, then it's beyond me. I lean, I err towards conservatism. But again, I'm not saying being strict. I'm saying I err in that way. Same conversation I had with my daughter, who, as many of you know, goes to college on the East Coast, that whatever you do in terms of your interaction, be clear that your biology is still there. You spend time with a person, you may start with no feelings whatsoever, that it's a classmate, it's a friend, what have you, feelings will form. So now think of other aspects of our deen and how we implement our Islamic law, our Islamic practice. The next point to think about, the first point, again, is that in the implementation of law, we don't go too strict and we don't go too loose. The second point to think about 
is how much of a default is law itself anyway? So, and again, repeating things you've heard from me many times coming to the office. <coughs> Three different students come to the office and all of them drink. And then they're asking me for advice on what to do. They're going to get three different answers. They're going to get answers according to what is their context. And so one person, I may tell, don't drink. Everybody knows you're not supposed to drink. But that person, I might assess that's all they needed to hear, and then I set them other way. The second person, I might tell them, all right, you need to find a different set of friends. So I don't even get into the conversation about what to do regarding booze because I'm seeing a root of the problem is the, the environment, the toxic people that they're spending their time with, and that's what they need to change. And then moving to the third person, that person, I might tell them, all right, you need to go see a therapist because the issue is deeper than the alcohol. The issue is deeper than your circle of friends. The issue is something much, much more complex and eternal, or uh, internal. So think about the point that I'm making, that one aspect in which we evaluate deen and practice of deen is through a legal lens, the lens of Islamic law. But another lens is looking at what is the healthiest next step for a person to take. That is also within Islamic law itself. That in Islamic law, one aspect is what we call the usul, which is to look at what does the text tell me I have to do. And a few things are haram, and a few things are fard, a few things are haram, prohibited, a few things are fard, obligatory. Most everything else is complicated. But then you add in a second element, which is what we call the maqasid, and the maqasid is looking at what are the goals. So I'll give you a different example. Again, what are the favorite topics in terms of Islamic practice of a common Loyola undergrad? Once again, three M's in the J, you know what they are. Marriage, meat, med school, and gins. Yeah. But in the case of, well, I've lost my complete train of, train of thought trying to remember the three M's and the J. But the point being, once again, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. okay, so, so the, the point being that in our practice of Islamic law, when we're speaking of maqasid, we're looking at what is the higher purpose, what is the goal. So if my entire Islamic law, Islamic practice, is focused on gender interaction and meat consumption, then you're not gonna see that person focus on things like justice. It's not gonna be on their map through an Islamic lens. It might be through a cultural lens, a social lens, or a university lens. You are not going to see that person focused on personal improvements. And then, it's also interesting for next week's khutbah, a preview, is going to be that two holidays are coming up where every single year we recycle the same conversations, but I'll give you a sneak preview. This is Halloween and Miladun Nabi. Okay. And what happens? People start asking, am I allowed to do this? But what am I saying here? 
that within the realm of Islamic law, the actual vision is continuous improvement. So when we speak of the maqasid, we're saying the goal is to try to preserve someone's religion. The goal is try to preserve someone's life. The goal is try to preserve other things like intellect, health, lineage, dignity. So it may be that for this person, they're told, this is haram, stay away from it. But for the second person, it's better to figure out something else that will work to preserve their deen. I've given you this example before, and I'll say it again because it's very, very useful, about the student who some of you know, some of you who are older, who was interested in Islam, and now he was getting ready to take his shahada after about four months of conversation and such, and he was asking me, do I need to stop drinking? And apologies for the repetition for those of you who know the story. And this conversation is taking place at the end of February, he wants to have fun when St. Patrick's Day comes. Now ask yourself, what would you tell him? Would you tell him, yeah, you have to stop drinking? If that's all the information that I gave. We'll say, yes, in, in the Al-Quran, you are not supposed to drink. Khamar and Maysir is, for, is forbidden. But what if he stops drinking, lasts four months, can't do it, starts drinking even more? So I said, right now, don't change anything. And then he asked, are you saying it's okay for me to drink? And I said, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying right now, your higher priority is you and your relationship with Allah. So he does his shahada and he stops drinking. Oh, I forgot the most important part of that conversation, or one of the most important part of the, uh, parts of the conversation. He says, but all the guys that I get drunk with are in the front row of Jummah. <laughs> Absolutely true. Now I'm just looking to see who's not smiling. Okay, anyway, anyway. So think about how you would respond to that. Obviously, a'udhu billah is part of your thinking, but what did I say to him? At least, alhamdulillah, they're coming to Jummah. Because it would be far worse if they're drinking and not coming to Jummah. Isn't that the case? Right, we have the companion of the Prophet, peace be upon him, they're complaining about this one companion who would, would pray in Jama'ah, and he's praying Isha, and then what would he do in the night? He'd get drunk and he'd start robbing people. And then companions complain, how can someone possibly be doing this? This is totally wrong. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, said what? Either the drinking, the robbing, the misbehavior is going to override his prayers and he's going to give up his prayers or his prayers are going to override his robbing and drinking. And alhamdulillah, the way it worked out was that he stopped the robbing and the drinking. He continued with the prayers. And so another point to think about, oh, I should finish this, this student's story. He takes his shahada. He doesn't even include his girlfriend who introduced him to Islam, so mashallah for that. Drops his girlfriend, and then he starts yelling at all his Muslim friends for drinking, saying, what kind of Muslims are you? And they started coming to my office asking for the Quran. And I thought to myself, what I couldn't accomplish with some of these guys in three years, he accomplished in three days. Mashallah for that. And he's still around, he's in med school. 
and, and still hardcore, mashallah, with his own struggles and such. But then this leads to the third point. First point is what? In terms of Islamic practice, within the bounds of what is halal, we're looking for what is the upright middle way. Not too strict where you have blowback, not too loose where you water everything down. The second point, you're looking at what are the higher priorities, the long-term goals with each scenario. So imagine every single one of you came to my office saying you're struggling with prayer. And let's say, hypothetically, each and every one of you prays the exact same amount. Each and every one of you would still probably get a different answer from me on what you need to do next according to your personality, according to your context, socially, religiously, your family, etc., etc., with the goal of bringing you long-term closer to Allah. But this third point, and I have to say this over and over again, is the power of our tongues to destroy the community. So think back to this example of seeing someone who's in the front row of Jummah. Again, I'm not pointing to anybody here, mashallah. Maybe it's one of these guys. But seeing someone who's in the front row, and then you also know that they go and party. And by partying, I'm not saying Democratic Party. I'm not saying Black Panther Party. I'm saying party, right? And then what happens? The toxic, loose-tongued people among us will start pointing it out. And that's how you start destroying community. That if you're not going to help the person, uh, then it's better to keep your mouth shut. If you can't say something to help the scenario, you're better off keeping your mouth shut because that person whose sins you're watching you are actually handing over your good deeds to evaporate those exact same sins. Of course, if you have a friend who might start hanging out with them, you might need to say, okay, they're not a good crowd for you. But the point I'm making is that this third thing is a third way that we often cripple ourselves. The first way is we, get, we take the wrong direction in terms of Islamic law. Second way, we lose our goals. And the third way is pointing fingers at each other. And you've heard all the cool metaphors. You already know the cool metaphors. You point fingers at someone, three fingers are pointing back at you. Or we've been given two ears and one mouth, so we should listen twice as much as we, as we talk. Cool metaphors, remember them if you've never heard them before. But the simple point I'm making is year after year, our community gets crippled because a few people get super toxic. How? By saying nasty things about other people. That destroys everything. So having said that, let's come to the office if there's any issues that you want to work with or you think you might need to work with, and we'll figure out how to evaluate and approach the dean in a way that is completely legit and completely relevant for you. So with that, we will finish at this moment, and then we'll begin, inshallah, the actual